You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here today with uh, Bernie Roth, who is a professor of engineering and also, I guess, one of the founding fathers, can we say that, of Stanford's famous D School, also the author of this book called The Achievement Habit, Stop Wishing, Start Doing, and Take Command of Your Life. Welcome, Bernie. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Now, look, when I was rereading this book, I realized how much of this book, which came out, I guess, about eight years ago or seven years ago, has sort of just become, I don't know, almost background knowledge. You know, you, you're always advising that we question all of the assumptions and ways of looking at the world. And I think these ways of looking at the world have become so integrated into the way a lot of people think that these terms design thinking are no longer unfamiliar to so many of us. And when you started teaching, of course, you were teaching courses in mechanical engineering, and you have taught and done a lot of work in robotics. But the bulk of your teaching and the bulk of your writing has really been about what we might think of as personal effectiveness, right? And I guess it seems odd that this is something that could be taught in an academic institution. So I was wondering if you could tell me sort of, you know, when you first introduced these courses, like the designer and society and, you know, the transformative design class and introduced, I guess, these workshops on creativity. I mean, how much of a departure was this from the normal kind of academic teaching? Well, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I must say the original thing was I had a very straight engineering background out of New York City. I had a, a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in mechanical engineering and didn't care anything about these other things that you, you're alluding to. And I came to Stanford and I met some unusual people. And somehow I got invited to a weekend down in Esalen for Stanford faculty. And in being there, I realized that a lot of the things they were talking about, which had to do with the human potential movement, really related to what I was doing. It just, we were applying it to different things. I was applying it to machines. They were applying it to people. But it seemed to me we were solving problems in a similar way. So I came back and I started to introduce that into my teaching. And then the stuff hit the fan. My chairman called me in. And he said, Roth, you're a smart guy. Don't you understand engineering has nothing to do with people? It just has to do with things. Cut this crap out. <laughs> and he was being nice to me. He was advising a young professor. He ultimately became my dean. And we had this kind of cordial relationship, but never really a great friendship. And when he retired, when he became 80, they invited me to his birthday party. And I wondered why they invited me. And it turns out it was a roast, and I was supposed to repeat this incident. And I did that, and he said, oh, you remembered that, you bastard. So what had happened in that time is the whole thing had changed, where uh, this man who he stormed the beaches in Normandy, he was a straight guy, he was trying to help me. Engineers don't deal with people. By the time he was 80, and now it's one of the most popular aspects of engineering is applying these things to your life and to situations which we didn't. So the world really 
changed a lot. Actually, when I was writing my book, which, as you say, was like seven years ago or so, I was a little worried about that I was going to get hit from my friends in the design community, that I was really dealing too much with myself and personal things. The, the mantra then was you design for others, not yourself. And But yet, if you look at the back of my book, I have this incredible things on the jacket from the head, head of the premier design firm in America, IDEO, saying, before you fix the world, you should fix yourself. Read this book. <laughs> so uh, it's changed. The world has changed a lot. And it's these things are now partly accepted in engineering. And uh, in the D school, which is in the engineering school, incidentally, it's an institute in the engineering school, we get uh, about a third of our students out of engineering. It's not your grandmother's engineering anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like to tell my students in the MBA program that the thing that they're going to learn is how to become more effective individuals, right? So, you know, they think they're coming to learn finance and accounting and marketing, but really what they're learning is how to become, you know, more effective. And obviously, subject knowledge is important and so forth, but none of it is really useful without having the capacity to be effective. So, I mean, should, should every school be teaching this or does it make sense to have someplace like the D school where, you know, you can learn your finance and then go to the D school to learn how to, you know, become effective? Well, I, it's really spread. There are a lot of places where people are doing this stuff in different departments. So the D school is one hub for it, but we get people from all over the world in all sorts of departments. I can't tell you how many heads of graduate schools of business have come to see me to know how to set up a D school. And all the school, Harvard has it, MIT has it. I mean, everyone's doing it, and they may give it a slightly different name and a slightly different twist. But the whole idea of problem solving, which involves a human dimension, we call human-centered design, it's omnipresent in every profession. And so it's, it, there are two parts to every problem. There's an expert part, but that turns out in general not to be the hard thing to do. You know, I remember I was on the board of some company, and the, actually a Berkeley-based company, and the chairman said to me, Bernie, can you give me someone? I'm looking for someone who can bring in a project in time and all that, and I can always hire an expert programmer and all that. I need someone who knows how to do the big picture and to deal with these other ten. Things and these things which are not usually associated with problem solving, but are, are at the heart of it. So it's common knowledge, you know, in, in different fields approach it in different ways. But it's very popular now. It, the world has changed a lot since this fellow called me in to give me good advice in the early 1960s. <laughs> Well, I was wondering if you could go even back even further to the origins of this whole movement. I mean, you talked about how when you got your PhD at, at Columbia, you were originally going to sort of stay on the East Coast, stay with Columbia, but then this odd opportunity emerged for you to come to Stanford. And there was a design division, right, within the mechanical engineering department. And that, that was, I guess, unusual at the time. I remember human factors used to be a thing that you could learn in engineering. It was sort of an afterthought, but did human factors emerge out of kind of the design stream of thinking within mechanical engineering? 
No, no. Human factors is a kind of interesting thing. It's really a misnomer. It's the most unhuman thing you could imagine. It was dimensions. It was like the mean, the mean reach of someone. Uh, how much does a woman weigh if she sits in the car? How much does a man weigh? It was all ergonomics, basically. It really didn't do, do with that. So that was a, you know, it was a technical field, and uh, it, it was useful in that sense. But it really had nothing to do with what we think of now, which we think now of the person's heart and their soul and it had not had muscular dimensions it didn't have those other dimensions at all so that was an aside and actually at stanford it was actually done in a department called industrial engineering at the time which no longer exists now in my case it was because there was a, a a fellow called John Arnold, who had a degree, his first degree was in philosophy, basically. And the, the story is he was working as a night watchman, because what else do philosophers do? And it was for an engineering firm, and he saw what these people were doing at night when he was looking around. He thought, that's cool. Somehow he got talked to MIT into letting him do a master's in engineering. He came, became a professor there. And he developed ways of teaching which were different. He made up a fictitious planet where people had to design vacuum cleaners when there's no gravity and stuff. And he was interested in creativity before it was fashionable. And his, his idea is not don't teach engineers to just memorize stuff, which is the way engineering was taught, to teach them to be creative. And he, did, he got into trouble at MIT because he was on the cover of Life magazine. He wasn't publishing in the right technical journals. So he came to Stanford as a professor in engineering and in the graduate school of business. He had two professorships. And he's the guy who hired me. And if you read in my book, it was a twinkle in his eye that got me to turn down a really great job at Columbia and come to Stanford the last minute. And then he was unkind enough to die a year after he brought me out. But he set the tone this thing of this odd thing which was unique at the time in the world of combining these things which we now call human-centered design with technical engineering and he left some heirs not only myself but a fellow called Bob McKim who passed away a year ago and he gave us a wrinkle on the world which just didn't exist and the closest would be what people called industrial design and that involved art. So we had a program which involved both art and engineering, and then we brought psychology into it, and then we brought human factor design and computers into it. So it was this whole idea of broadening the definition of the profession. Now, when I post these podcasts, I usually list the various disciplines that the speaker or interviewee is in. And it's kind of hard with you. And I was thinking of actually adding philosophy as one of the categories, because the book in many ways has a lot of philosophy in it. And I think I, I love the way you ended the book where you said that, you know, your goal is to create a bunch of anti-Oblomoffs, right? So do you really want to instill in people this bias for action, so I was wondering, do you really think that people overthink things? I mean, part of what you're doing is descriptive in the sense that most of us act without thinking, right? And then later we backfill. Other people, they don't act because they overthink. So I think part of what you're saying is that you should act first, but not after you act, sort of construct false narratives about you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. 
Well, a good example is a course we have, actually someone I co-teach with, but I don't co-teach this course with him. This guy, when he was a student, invented the modern snowshoe, uh, which was used to a tennis racket, and now, now it's made of metal and much better. And uh, he runs a class called Launchpad with someone else, and their whole thing is, it's not a class, it's starting a business. <laughs> and they have to have income by at the end of three weeks. And they have to move forward, and it's okay to fail as opposed to the more conventional business school thing, which is you plan, and the worst thing you can do is fail. And our thing is it's okay to fail, but when you fail forward, you learn from your failure, and you pick yourself up, and you move forward. So we really have this thing where it's, as you say, it's a bias towards action. Just do it. Now, of course, you know, we're not talking about heart surgery and stuff like that, but we're talking about stuff which is not fatal if you fail and you can learn from it. And we find that you can do things much more quickly. One of the early classes, these students invented a app where you could read news with pictorially as opposed to words. And in about the third week or so, the faculty said to the students, launch your app. And they said, no, no, it's not read. It's not perfect. They said, launch or get out of the class. So they launched the app. And of course, there were things that had to be fixed. But in those days, uh, they were able to get feedback every day because it was a new thing and it was a, a new use of the Apple notebook. By the end of the 10 weeks, they were making like $40,000 and Steve Jobs got his cut out of it. And they had this very successful app that went to the top of the list. If they had done it in some other environment, they'd still be fiddling around with it rather than being out there using it. And so we find in one case after another, you have to do something. You have to take a step. You don't sit there and think and think and think about it. And in taking the step, you get valuable feedback, which you can then use to improve things. So that's our philosophy of this bias towards action thing and the whole idea of failing forward. And it seems to work. We have influenced tens of millions of people and it was done by students that had no expertise in the thing they were going to work on. They had just expertise in the process. And, you know, when they needed expertise, they brought it in. It's not so hard to do. And it's a very successful method. It's not the only method, but for us, it really does work very well. Well, I think you also said that you need to seek out problems, right? I mean, a lot of people try to avoid problems, right? But life is about problem solving. So can you design a life trajectory that... I guess you're not trying to maximize problems, but you're, you're, you're kind of sailing straight into the problem rather than trying to skirt it, right? Well, it's worse than that even, you know. I must say I come from a different world, but the world that has, I've turned into here at Stanford, I live with people who believe problems are opportunities. So the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And if you think about it, that's what life is about. Life is about problem solving. Uh, I, I'm sure you're the same way. If I have a problem, I can't sleep at night. I'm well excited. I have a lot of energy. If I'm depressed and I have nothing to do, I stay in bed. Problem solving is a great activity. And you don't, it, it's not necessarily frustrating. It's not like a disease. You know, it's actually, uh, it's an exercise. You know, if you think of all the things that people do 
that they bring problems into their life. They have hobbies that they work on. It's it's just a different thing. I'm, I'm actually, one of the books I use in my classes, The Wright Brothers, a biography of the Wright Brothers. It's a real example. These two high school graduates took on this thing of getting people to fly. And it's an incredible story of what they did and went through to do it. It's, it's very scientific. They were great scientists. And they learned all that by themselves from reading. They never went to college. It's an amazing story, but it's an example of the things you can do if you devote yourself to it and you have a little bit of luck. So, you know, the normal path of people, they go to college and they learn something reluctantly and they stumble into a profession in some way. And it's much better if you're inspired and, and you take the problem on as your life force. You, it gives you something to do. And, uh, you know, we usually attribute that to artists, uh, that there's something is speaking to them. But it's the same in everything, in every profession. It's the same way. If you engage as you have a life force. If not, it's a drag. And so, yeah. so problems are good. Then the punchline's problems are good, unless you make a problem out of having problems. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think you use the term virtue, but you do talk about habits. And in fact, the title of the book is The Achievement Habit. So it seems like it's really about cultivation of certain personality traits and dispositions, which are going to lead you to be more likely to achieve and you define achievement as the good life right now a lot of people would say well hold on i mean when you hear that you think well wait a second are you implying that being a busybody and checking all sorts of things off your to-do list like that's what the good life is right no i have a friend she said to me bernie i would never buy a book with achievement in the title <laughs> and i don't mean achievement in terms of becoming king of the universe or queen of the universe or anything like that to me achievement is uh, when you die your friends don't have to lie about you and you enjoyed life in a way that you found there was a life force you know i'm sort of pushing the normal meaning of achievement, but there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's really a, better, a good thing in the world. If it gets some people to think about what we mean about achievement and redefine it to themselves, I, I might do some more good in the world. So Yeah, well, I mean, you, you mentioned these three levels of questions, and I recognize this as something that I've you know, talked about quite a bit. I can paraphrase it because I can put it into my words, but the first question is sort of like, what do you want? Second one is kind of, you know, what kind of life do you want? And then the third is kind of, what kind of person do you want to be? And I think, you know, one can talk about, I guess, achievement or becoming more effective at in all three levels, but there's the meta question of, you know, how much attention do you devote to those three different levels? And I think your point is that that third level is probably the one where you ought to devote, you know, much more of your, your effort and attention. Yeah, well, because, you know, the whole public thing sells the other levels. And I say my message is really to sort of try and be true to yourself and figure out what works for you. And the world is more pliable than you think. So you don't have to be organized the way you think it is at work or in your life, and you can take uh, changes. I started this whole course based on two things. That one was uh, people kept coming to me and talk about starting a business, and they never did. And I don't care if they did or don't, but don't talk about it if you're not going to do it. Don't do it. And the other was they came to me with problems that seemed insoluble that I thought were easy to solve if they could just step out of their persona and look at it objectively. And I started this course 
based on that, and the book is based on my experience mainly in that course, but other things in my life too. Well, and the, the course you're referring to, the, the designer in society, I mean, it's, it's kind of unique in that the deliverable is completely up to the student. I mean, we have these experiential learning classes, right, in the business schools where company will come and say, hey, here's our pro- or here's what we think our problem is. And you can either solve that problem or maybe reframe it and figure out what the real problem is. But those are all kind of projects that come to the classroom from without. But in this class, every student gets to pick anything. They can pick any goal whatsoever. I have a separate question about how on earth, you know, you're able to give credit for that. That's a separate question. But do you have an overarching theory as to why, I mean, why do people need this? Is there some underlying functional logic as to why people would create so many obstacles for themselves and view the world in a way that is so counterproductive? Right. Why do we need it? Why do we need a course like this? It seems like we should want to and be already figuring this stuff out in our own lives. We, we shouldn't need to be taught it. Right. Well, that, that sort of was my question. Why? Why are these people coming to you with these issues? Don't they have priests and rabbis and parents and and the psychiatry? Why are they coming to me with this stuff? So it was the same. I got there the same way. And I was not even competent to do it. So I trained myself to do it. And I feel I'm lucky that I have a natural bent for it. So it's something I didn't know about myself. And I found that I was quite good at it. And so I was glad to do it. I wasn't harming people. You know, and I did a lot of the company ones that you talk about, you know, projects for sponsored projects for companies, and it's a whole different cut, you know. And it's a good thing also they learn some stuff with the company. But this is a thing, this is a human need basically that people don't think they should get from schools. I mean it's ironic. You go to a place like Stanford, you can learn about everything in the world except yourself. <laughs> I mean most courses don't deal with you. They deal with some abstract Greek philosophy or some stuff like that. They don't deal with taking one step in front of the other. So it was very popular. And you're right, like, how did I get to do it? And why did they ever let me do it? It was interesting. It was during the Vietnam War. So the authorities were so busy with other things. By the time they noticed what I've done, it already had an incredible track record. So instead of saying you can't do it, they slapped me on the back and they said, good work, Bernie, keep it up. <laughs> but, you know, it, it isn't something you'd normally think of doing in an engineering class. Yeah, I mean, you use this term kind of self-discovery. I mean, part of what this process is all about is figuring out what your goals really are. And part of it's about figuring out how to achieve them. But isn't this kind of the traditional role of the humanities? I mean, I've talked to a lot of folks who teach in the humanities, and that sort of was the whole point of reading philosophy and literature. Why do we need an engineer to teach this, right? Why aren't the philosophy teachers doing this? Well, some of my best friends are in the humanities. Well, the philosophy is, of course, more abstract. They don't apply it to it. It's like mathematicians. They don't necessarily teach you how to do arithmetic. They teach you to do some abstract thing, which is where the field's at. And the psychology is that way, too. You know, it's basically studying rats and stuff like that and doing experiments with student classes and getting some statistic that... 62% of people prefer this versus that. And they're not as applied. Well, I remember when you first came, when this book came out and I first heard about it and you came to Berkeley, I remember the thing that I remembered most was reasons are bullshit. 
And I remember this was very provocative and I got really upset because, you know, I'm somebody who believes that there should be a reason for everything. And I'm somebody who, whenever I actually like people to ask me why questions. And I kind of realized one of the problems that I had in navigating the bureaucratic organizations is because I, I always thought that people wanted to be asked why. Because <laughs> I was like, when people, a student comes to me and says, you know, why are we reading this book? Or, you know, why, why do you cold call? And I'm like, oh, thank God you asked. You're here, you know, I'm happy to talk about it and debate it. But in my life, I've realized that whenever I ask somebody why, I'm just setting myself up for a whole bunch of trouble. Or I'm inviting some kind of nonsensical backfill that they either made up and they know it's nonsense or they, they don't know it's nonsense. And so when I realized, oh, wow, Everything I'm hearing is just a smokescreen. It helped me to really understand, particularly university administration, which I, I couldn't really understand before that. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of depressing to know that's the way the world is. Yeah, but the whole idea is there are so many reasons for everything that when you pick out one reason, when you're the reason for something, it's a lie. You may not be aware of it, but clearly... There's many things, you know, my classic one is we're talking, you and I now, and I talk a lot in class, my mouth is dry. So if you ask me why is your mouth dry, the obvious reason is I'm talking a lot, right? However, there is a, a big backstory that you don't know. And the big backstory is that I'm always dehydrated. When I go to Burning Man, I don't piss clear. I don't have, a, I drank a bottle of wine last night with my wife. My wife always says I don't drink enough water. And it's a big thing. So I pick out of all those possible things, I pick the one that makes me best in my self-image. Because I want Bernie to look good to you. And so I think I'm talking a lot. So that's why I'm, my, my mouth is dry. That's great. It's not the whole backstory. But everything you do, you're so complex. You have stuff in you from the Big Bang, if you believe all that stuff. And you have so much DNA and so relative. So I say, you know, the reason for anything is some relative had sex back 16 generations. You wouldn't, it's the reason for it. That's absurd, right? So I'm not going to tell you that. That's like beyond the pale. But I can, within the stuff, I can tell you stuff that makes me look the way I want to. I mean, it's a little tricky because I grew up with some guys in New York that were sort of nasty people. And then ended up in Hollywood and in show business and all that. But they're basically nasty people. And if you ask them for a reason, they'll give you a reason that tells you how nasty they are. Because that's their self-image. They want to be nasty. I want to be a nice guy. So I give you something that's a nice guy answer. But the truth is, there's no one reason for anything. We're so complicated. When you ask me a question, has to do with my relationship to you, what I'm willing to reveal, what you know, our history. It's so complicated. And so the point is, so what? And the big thing is reasons are often used as excuses. And that's, for me, the big so what. So reasons are bullshit in the truth that they're not the truth of anything because there is no reason for one thing. And who cares? But the point simply is that if you use a reason, it's an excuse often and it doesn't let you move forward. And it's a way of not never changing. As long as you have reasons, you're never going to change. But if you realize that what the truth is, that then you can change. It changes your behavior. So it's a real big thing to avoid. And my funny story with that is 
I have these stickers I give out, which you put on your computer that say reasons of bullshit. And there's a little picture on it. It's from the book, actually, the chapter heading from the book. And there was a woman working in the mailroom who was from a previous century. She was like absurdly not in this century. So she looks at this thing which comes in and she says, what a terrible word. And of course, she means bullshit. And I say, yeah, reasons. (laughs) (laughs) And it was that way. I, I mean, it came, came just genuinely out of me. But it really, reasons are a much bit more terrible word than bullshit. Because bullshit doesn't do any harm. Reasons do a lot of harm in our world. So anyway, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting when people get it. It's, you know, it's a little resistance to it. People are so used to reasons. But in fact, you don't know the reasons for stuff. You just don't know it. And you make it up. And it, it could be socially nice, and it's a possible harm, very harmful thing. Well, now, people don't generally like it when you point that out. <laughs> so, you know, if I, if I have an administrator say, oh, we can't do that because we don't have the budget, and I'll say, no, what you're saying is that you've chosen to spend the budget in a different way, okay, which is more accurate, but it's also just, that just pisses people off, right? People don't like to hear this. Well, I always tell, and I think I have it in the book, don't try this at home. Don't fix it. Body, fix yourself. So what I do myself, if, I, if I'm forced to give a reason, I'll give it. I don't want to be a jerk about it. But then I'll say in my head what I think the true thing is. And the point is that uh, if you do that, you'll eventually change your behavior. My epiphany came from this company. I was on the board in Berkeley, and I'd always come late to the meetings. And I'd always blame the traffic on Highway 17 in those days. And when I realized that it was not the traffic, it was Bernie Roth not leaving in time, it totally changed my life, and I became on time for everything. And it's the whole idea that as long as I believed there was the traffic, I could never change it. But as once I saw that, in fact, it was a bullshit reason, then I had to decide, do I want to be on the board or not? Do I want to waste their time waiting for me or do I want to be responsible? And I really decided, yeah, I like this. I want to be on the board. I like this company. So I became on time all the time. And I became on time on everything. It's not that hard, you know. But it's an interesting thing to realize how just in one or two cases, if you get the idea how you're using reasons to stop you from changing your behavior, you can change your behavior. Not necessarily all at once, but slowly it'll change if you keep telling yourself that was bullshit. But don't tell anyone else. People don't like it. They get totally offended. It's a stupid thing to do. You'll lose your friends. I don't, I don't tell my wife. I've never told my wife her reasons are bullshit. I don't tell my kids. I don't tell anyone. I tell people who hire me in workshops, and I tell my classes. But otherwise, I don't say that at all. I bike with some guys every Sunday. I cannot tell you how full of shit they are, <laughs> how much bullshit goes on. I never once say your reasons are bullshit. I never do. I honor them. They're my friends. They're not hiring me to, to straighten their lives out. I think that's one of the frustrations of every professor, which is that people pay us good money to give them advice, but when you offer it for free, nobody wants it, right? Sure, yeah, that's true. Now, like, I mean, if it were just simply about impression management with other people, it wouldn't be terribly harmful. But really what, what you're advocating is kind of a ruthless honesty about oneself, right? 
to oneself. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm doing the class this quarter, and uh, I, I give them a whole thing at the beginning, how they got to attend, they got to attend, they got to attend. And then we do reasons of bullshit in the second week, so they get it. And, of course, I got an email from a guy this, just before this last class last week. Bernie, I'm sorry I'm not going to be in class tomorrow. I'm not going to give any reasons. I know I give reasons, but I have a good reason for this. But what he made a choice, you know, he made a choice to do something else rather than come to the class. It's okay. And somehow they think that they would be offended if they said, I, I chose to do the other thing. But that's what it is. Whatever the reason is, whatever he's doing, unless someone was going to murder him if he didn't go, probably made it. And even if it was murder, he'd made a choice not to get murder. I could see that. <laughs> I would rather not get murder than go to Bernie Roth's class. <laughs> but the point simply is to realize it's not whatever his good reason is. It's bullshit his reason. And if he realizes that, he's more powerful. And it's not, he doesn't have to feel guilty about it. He made the choice. That's it. I got no problem with that. But I hate when they give me these things. And after I brainwash them, that reason, and they still do it. It's, it's so interesting how you can't get rid of the reason thing. It's just so ingrained in us. And they're nonsense. They really are. There's no one reason for anything. It's for no matter what. You know, well, if you ask me, why am I saying what I'm saying to you? I'll tell you, I'll make up a reason. But I don't know, you know, I'm, as you say, I'm not even thinking about it. It's coming out of me automatically. Of course, I've talked about this before, but still, I'm not thinking. I'm just talking. And afterward, if you tell me, I'll, I'll rationalize it. Well, this means that, and I'll give you this scholarly thing. But I don't know why it's coming out. You know, I don't know what. It just, I'm... I'm on automatic. You're on automatic. That's the way we are. And thank goodness, you know, if we had to sit and think before every word came out, we'd never get anything done. Now, when you talk about yellow-eyed cats, I mean, I love this idea, right, that, you know, everything that you currently believe, you didn't believe at one point, and everything you know, like, you didn't know at one point. And so, you know, you're always discovering things. And if you ask someone, like, what do you think of discovery? Everybody's like, yeah, great. And if you say, what do you think about honesty? They'll be like, yeah, great. What do you think about effectiveness? It's like, yeah, great. And yet people sabotage themselves in these ways. This requires a certain disposition, I guess, a type of confidence and, and lack of fear. I mean, because if you're in, in a fight or flight frame of mind, then, you know, novelty is could be threatening, right? And so, I mean, is there some kind of precondition that you have to put in place some level of comfort safety lack of fear before one can kind of undertake these new ways of thinking well no not really i think the way i present them is a lot of it takes place in your head and there there's no risk uh, you're just redoing it you're re-saying it uh, for example you know i have this thing about and and but like you should use ands rather than the word but for well that's just in your head you know so the point is like i'll go in to say someone at stanford there's some dean that i have no good relationship with we have a bad history and he'll ask me something and uh, i'll tell them some bullshit reason. I'm not, on the other hand, when I go out, I might think about it and rethink it and fix it up in my own head. But I'm not going to bear myself, my soul, if I don't trust him. You know, I'd say in all my history in Stanford, which is 61 years, I've had a lot of chairs. And of that whole history, there were two people I would 
go in and honestly talk about them and not be afraid they'd use it against me. That's two out of maybe 10 or 12. So, you know, I'm going to protect myself like anyone else. On the other hand, I can use that experience to learn from it and, and, and see from it. But, you know, I've done this with a lot of people, a lot of workshops all over the world. And I teach, co-teach, you know, in the D school now, I, I had to get a co-teacher for my class. And it works. I mean, everyone, all, all the co-teachers, only one of the co-teachers has ever taken the class. <laughs> and the others are just people I know. And, and, you know, they follow me along in the beginning. And they all end up, believers and it's because it works in their lives it's not that they they may like me and trust me but if it didn't work in their life they wouldn't do it you know they're not stupid about it so and i have like students from years back as i say so this stuff works it's anything human nothing works 100 percent. nothing works in every situation or that we're human and it's complicated and the people we deal with are complicated and, you know but by and large, these things are really useful tools. And I feel good about them. And, uh, you know, I keep tell everyone, probably this course is the thing I'm least competent in a training way, formal training way to teach. And probably it's the best thing I've ever done in my life at Stanford is this class. Okay. So now how do you do that? And I, have, I have three degrees in ME and I have like three honorary PhDs on top of that stuff. None of it is for this this stuff. It's for, other, you know, the, the equations and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel this is the better stuff in terms of as a teacher. And I have students I'm very proud of who are professors who are very, in the academy, I have a lot of people who are very successful. But I think this stuff is the best thing I've done for them personally. And they're not like me. They're not clones. They are who they are. But there's a lot in it that you can find. Like, you know, there's things in the book you spoke to you. And you will use them. And other things don't speak to you. You don't use it. And, you know, some people come, oh, Bernie, I did this and it turned terrible. All right, don't use it. Okay, no money back guarantee. If it doesn't work for you, don't use it. But the thing is, to you, the main problem is people don't use it. I have this thing in the book on reframing, get to the right problem. And I do this workshop every year. Professors also are part of this workshop, so they sit in the back while I'm doing this. And this one guy who I like very much, really a good professor, comes up to me every year after this thing. He says, Bernie, that procedure is wonderful. Sitting in the back of the room, I solve my problem again. And I kiss him and I thank him. But what goes to my mind is, what do you need a me for? It's a simple Why do you wait all year long to use it at this workshop? Why don't you use it in your life daily or whatever it is? And that's my thing is, is you can believe this stuff is great, but if you don't use it, so what? You can believe it's terrible if you don't use it, so what? So that's the, my main concern is trying to get the students to use it in their life and either make it a tool or forget about it. Not just to think about it. And they're so used to not doing that. So I actually devote a considerable amount of each class to what did you do in your life outside that related to the things we talk about? And, you know, some of them make it up so they can get by me. But basically, I think that's the thing about it, that they don't expect to necessarily practice. You know, they're waiting till they graduate 
to practice what being a businessman or whatever it is. And this whole idea that life is now and you can use this stuff usefully right now is my biggest fight, really. Well, that's why I ask you in terms of becoming effective, you use the term habit. In other words, do you get better at it as you do more of it? And is it sort of domain agnostic? So if you become better at kind of problem solving in, say, you know, your work environment, are you then going to be more likely to be a good problem solver, say, you know, in your home life? Are these domain neutral? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that that's the thing. It can be used in any way, in any, any way at all. And uh, it's it's part of life. I mean, that's that was my big epiphany when I was this young assistant professor. That, I mean, who, it depends who you believe in. You can believe in Marx and Engel or God or nature or anything. It doesn't matter. Whatever you believe in, you're in this thing and you have these problems called life. So you start and basically you have to get from here till you die. And you have to fill it out by doing all these things, which we call problem solving, believe it or not. Yeah. And, you know, you have to learn how to dress properly. You have to learn how to speak properly. You have to learn how to do your your hygiene, all that. And that's the same. It's the same to me if I'm deciding about a piece of clothes or I'm fixing a part on a machine. I mean, it's the same idea of what's the real problem, what do I have to do? Or the basic things that you're doing are similar, even though the domain is different and the specific facts are the same. But how I do it and how I approach it is a little agnostic. And that make, make, makes you a great problem solver or crappy problem solving, whatever you do. So I think it's really important that way. And some people are better at everything and some people are bad at everything. But I think very little things require specific information that you can't learn in doing the thing itself. And as you said, no one is born knowing any of this stuff. Everything you did, someone, someone taught you. So, yeah, I don't know. You know, we break this stuff down because it's easy to teach and we put a border around it. We call it this and we call it that. And it's useful in some ways, but I don't know. In the D school, we don't have any one class where we let in only business students or only engineers. We don't let it be only one discipline. And we have, and I'll have a class literally where I'll have freshmen in there and I'll have postdocs in there, and it could be health, uh, medicine, law, humanities, <laughs> engineering, and all that. And uh, it's because the kinds of things we're talking about are universal. Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you talk about can be done through self-reflection, but a lot of it really benefits from discussions with and encounters with other people, particularly other people who may have different perspectives, right? So, you know, you're more likely to see a yellow-eyed cat if, you, uh, if you're hanging out with people that aren't like yourself. And so is a big part of your teaching kind of curation of the people that you're teaching and sort of setting up these dynamic environments so that the teaching can kind of happen laterally rather than, than top-down? Yeah, so a lot is giving them something to work on and then criticizing and pointing out to them things that they don't see themselves. So, and a lot of it, they you team them up and you give both responsibility to be a creator and to be a coach. So they have some learning that way. Yeah, so those are the kind of techniques we use a lot. But, you know, it's so obvious, you know, when I'm being a jerk, my wife can tell me very 
that I'm being a jerk and I don't realize it until she tells me. And of course I deny it. And then I realize she's right. And I somehow crawl back <laughs> and try and save some face. And it's true for all of us. You know, we're all, we're all imperfect and our friends see it on us and you can help others. And sometimes you're lucky enough to help yourself. And yeah, so it's, it's just one of these things that's, I think, as I said, when I started out, there was nowhere to do any of this. Uh, you know, go and get a degree at a school like Stanford. And if you're studying engineering, you never once hear. Maybe they have something about some professional code you shouldn't steal or something like that. But it's such an abstract thing. And it's maybe the tobacco company they're looking at. It's not something you're going to deal with in your life. So none of it seemed to relate to the person. It was all creating this autonomous professional. Uh, but and it's funny, the thing like now, the big thing, you know, used to be blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Now the thing is AI, right? And the chats and all that stuff. And the big argument is these things are going to be smarter than us. Well, there's a lot of people smarter than me. I don't care if machines are smarter than me. Questions: what, what do you do? What do you do? There's, there's so many people smarter than me. I don't want to be like them at all, you know. <laughs> so, it, I mean, they picked the wrong thing, it seems to me. That really doesn't matter in a way. And the same thing is true in anything. And people can help you a lot and if it's things you talk about. And if you just talk about the ball game, it's not going to help you very much. Now, you mentioned that while you are focused on helping people become more effective, the bulk of the design thinking discipline is really about helping organizations to be more effective at problem solving. What's the connection? I mean, if you want to be a more effective problem solver as an organization, do you just make sure that you make all of your individuals better problem solvers or is there an extra piece there which is around process yeah well it's hard to say you know it's it's probably the answer is yes 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 to all these things you can always find examples but basically i would say in an ideal world you get yourself straight and so that you can see things for the way they are and you're honest with yourself and all that. And you would probably do a better job working for others and helping to straighten the world out if it's not done for some bizarre reason of wanting to increase your fame or wealth or something like that. On the other hand, that might be enough thing to get the job done. I don't know. It's just so interesting uh, to look at it. You, you have, I just told you I'm reading a book about the Wright brothers. So they didn't take money from anyone. They spent for the whole thing, four years, till they got something flying and developed the basic science of aerodynamics. They spent $1,000 of their own money from their bicycle shop. Four years. Not counting their time, but otherwise. Langley who was the head of the Smithsonian, got $70,000 and at the same time produced nothing, absolutely nothing, total failure. Okay, so now how do you do that? Langley was a professional, highly one of the foremost scientists in the country. He was the expert on aerodynamics and all his data was bullshit data. So how do you explain that? It's totally irrational. But you had these two guys who... It just took over their lives. That's all they talked about and thought about for years. They had ran a business on the side, but it was so they could do that. 
So how do you instill that? And he is a professional with a lot of integrity. We've named an airport after him and all that. And he did nothing on it. So it's a lot of the luck of the draw. You know, in my life, a lot of the really great things. So I feel lucky about it just happened. I was in the right time in the right place. And life is that way. You know, it's really hard. You can't make a balance. I think a lot of stuff is luck, you know, just, and of course there's commitment and all these things are useful and they may or may not work and nothing works all the time. So, Well, Bernie, I would say to people, if they can't take the creativity workshop with you, they should just check out the achievement habit. It's a lot cheaper and more convenient, <laughs> but wonderful set of lessons in there. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.